Hey everyone, I'm Cyrus. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for the conference for inviting me here. So I've traveled from Amsterdam. I used to be based in Copenhagen, so it's nice to be back close to where I was living before. And I'll be talking today in the clouds about growing your own cloud, which is really nice. So yeah, the project is called Grow Your Own Cloud, and it's a collaboration between myself. I've already been introduced, so I won't explain what I am and what I do. And Monica Seyfried, who's a designer from Poland, who's currently based in Copenhagen. And together we have a practice which is all about using what's called speculative design. So looking in, into the future with emerging technologies in particular, imagining what's possible and then exploring the ethical quandaries and dilemmas that arise when we use these emerging technologies to try and inform what we do today. And this collaboration, Grow Your Own Cloud in particular, is very important to us because it involves a collaboration between the arts and science, but most importantly, with this little thing here, with nature, which is all around us and something we need to take much more care of. And this project is really grounded in a question that I've been asking myself since I basically graduated, initially with a, with a degree in economics, believe it or not, about eight years ago. And it's the question here, what will it take for humans to truly value nature? And it's because we really don't have systems that are equipped for us to understand the value of nature. We might understand it inherently as a human being, but the systems we've created as humans, as a species, don't take into account the value of nature at all. So we really want to do something about that as designers and artists, which seems a bit of a difficult challenge, but we tried anyway. And it seemed important at the time <coughs> when we began the project in 2017, which is a few years ago now, but as we've been working on the project more and more, it's become apparent that this work is incredibly vital because things like this are happening all the time. We've all seen the images of the Amazonia burning. And it seems like this kind of thing is inevitable. We've kind of given up hope. It seems like the future will be filled with things like this. If you watch a Hollywood movie, you just see destruction and catastrophe everywhere. And then suddenly a single human being just saves the day somehow. And of course, that's complete fantasy. It's all on us right now to try and imagine and envision other types of futures, but it seems somewhere along the way we kind of lost the ability to do that. I think somewhere in the 60s, actually, we were talking about it last night over some beers with some other futurists. Why did we and when did we, as a species, lose hope? So myself and Monica thought, well, maybe we can try to provide some other types of visions for the future, another type of vision which is maybe more in harmony, especially with nature, which seems really radical in the systems that we live in today. So how about systems which are regenerative and not destructive? How about systems which prioritize the climate and not capital? How about systems which are green and not greenwashed? How about systems that seek justice and not just convenience, which is basically the bane of my existence as a designer? So Grow Your Own Cloud is our effort at doing that and answering some of those questions. And we started out somewhere maybe a bit unexpected. We started out by thinking about data, and in particular, the notion of the cloud, the place where all of your data lives. And it's because the cloud itself is a very problematic, contradictory issue, which maybe some of you know about, but I'll go through it in a little bit of detail. Basically, the cloud is filled with these contradictions. We think of the cloud and our data as being something very personal, something which we own, something which is intangible, mysterious in the air somehow, because it lives in this cloud. 
something that therefore is fluffy because the clouds are fluffy and nice and clean, right? No, of course not. The cloud itself is a hyper object, this huge infrastructure of cables and the largest buildings that have ever been built. It's incredibly dirty, as I'll come to show you in a second. It's run by non-human entities. It's nothing to do with humans, really. And it's extremely remote. Most of your data is very, very far from where you are right now. Probably in a data center somewhere in Iceland or Finland or somewhere like this. And at the same time, our appetite for data is completely insatiable. Like right now, I see people writing things on smartphones, uploading things to the cloud as we speak. It's out of control. And as this graph kind of shows, this is the only graph, I promise, basically our consumption of data and our, and our ability to store data is already out of kilt. We've already reached a point where we produce more data than we can store. That's not really widely spoken about. And of course, on the back end of things, there are scientists and technologists who are rushing to try and solve this really important problem. How do we store even more data? Like Moore's law, we're just trying to get that parabolic curve going up again. But that's a massive problem because we're already using more energy than the entire UK to power the data centers that house all of your data. And the UK is still quite a big country, like it's the fifth biggest economy in the world. And that means those data centers are emitting more carbon dioxide than the aviation industry. And I know in Sweden, there's a whole thing about not flying anymore. When I do this talk in America, this is a bit more like, powerful, this moment here. Um, but yeah, this is still a very, very important contributing factor to global warming. 4%, 5%, something like this. And unlike the aviation industry, our data consumption is growing exponentially. And will continue to grow even more exponentially and out of control as we head to futures which are completely automated and smart cities and our lives just running on data continuously. So just want you to think about that for a while. So what do we do about this, basically? Do we like throw away our smartphones and destroy all the data centers and stop using data, basically? Because otherwise, we'll be heading towards this future which we're calling data warming. Well, I don't know. I don't think that's a very pragmatic solution. I'm not that pragmatic myself, to be honest, though. So maybe there's something else we can do. Maybe we can look to other forms of inspiration. So what myself and Monica did was we started looking to nature for inspiration. And we found in nature a potential answer. Not a solution, because I'm not really a solution-oriented person, but maybe more of a provocation, a vehicle to unlock more questions. And that led us to the oldest storage device in the world, which is DNA, as maybe some of you know. And it turns out that DNA is not only old, it's super good. Old is gold, that kind of thing. So DNA is a very old storage medium. It's also the most dense storage medium in the universe. It stores way more data than anything to do with silicon. It stores something like 200 petabytes per gram, if you can understand what that really means. In, a, in layman's terms, basically, we could store all of the world's data in the back of a van rather than having these gargantuan data centers which occupy swathes of land and destroy agriculture and so on. It also has this amazing property of being basically like limitless in terms of its lifespan. As long as we are around as a species and we can read back DNA, it will be there. 
So its, it's lifespan is 10,000 years if you leave it in the ground. But imagine if you were to freeze it and keep it in controlled conditions. It basically lives forever compared to something like, I don't know, your hard disks that go obsolete after three to five years. That seems pretty remarkable to me. And then also it has this amazing property of being carbon neutral at, at worst and probably beneficial to the environment at best. So seemed interesting to explore further. We started diving into the science to explore how it works, which is probably what you're thinking right now. And I'm not going to be able to explain it to you quickly enough for you to understand, but I'll give it a go. So basically, imagine you take a file. Let's say it's an MP3 of your favorite song. You can break down that file into zeros and ones, which is binary. That binary then gets mapped to ACGNT, which is the building blocks of life, DNA. And that's a simple mapping. Computer scientists have figured that out for a long time. Very, very well-established protocol for that. Once you've got your, your file in the ACGT format, you can basically synthesize DNA. So you basically go from a digital file to liquid. So your MP3 is now in a tiny drop of liquid, actually smaller than a drop than you can imagine. And then once you have that, you can sequence the liquid and produce multiple versions of it, and then give it to all your friends. Lovely. A new format for file sharing, once again. And then to get it back into digital format, you do the reverse process. Pretty simple, right? So that was the beginning, and that seems okay. And that's what scientists are doing right now. We're not scientists, we're artists and designers. So we started thinking, well, if you can store it in synthetic liquid, which is quite, again, banal, a bit boring, doesn't fill me with much emotion, why not store it in organisms? And of course, the immediate response is, well, which organism? Because that could get weird if there's a dog or something. Don't want to store it in my dog. But maybe there's an organism that we work with and currently exploit, I would say, quite a lot. And that could be plants and trees and fungi and these kind of organisms. Maybe we could work with them. So we started looking into organisms as a storage device, and particularly plants, because plants, as we've discussed earlier, are very amazing organisms. They have all of these fantastic hidden secrets. They communicate with each other under the soil. They have their own internet and things like that. Super cool. They also have properties which we know about very well. So they obviously absorb carbon dioxide, which is great for fighting global warming. And they emit oxygen, which is great for us breathing. So that's nice. And when we did more research, something we stumbled upon was the fact that plants also are some of the largest organisms in the world. And I'm not talking size, I'm talking the size of their genome. So humans are roughly, I think, 700 megabytes of data, let's say. And Paris Japonica, which is basically a rose bush, has 49 billion base pairs. It's something like 70 times larger than the human's data capacity. Now, this isn't to say that the plant could definitely store 70 times as much data as a human. But in theory, kind of, it can. So we thought this is interesting. Can we explore this further? Is this science fiction? Is this weird? Is this mad? We didn't know. So we started getting in contact with some scientists, plant geneticists, to understand more. And we understood that actually this was completely feasible, completely possible, already being done, actually quite mundane for the scientists, which was disappointing for us because we thought we were coming with really radical ideas. But what they hadn't done was really explore how this could be useful in the world. They knew it could be done, but they had not made the link between storing data in plants and data production, storage, and carbon emissions. 
So that became interesting for them. And we started to work on establishing at least three techniques to store data in plants in Copenhagen, at the University of Copenhagen. And the three techniques are here. Foliage injection, which is literally taking a syringe of data and injecting a plant with it. Um, a floral dip, which is where you take your plant and you dip it in a bacterial solution containing your data. And a ballistic shot, which is where you literally shoot your, uh, you shoot your plant with a gun. Completely mad, right. Um, the gun itself has a gold particle and it penetrates the cell wall and the data gets in via this mechanism. So it's really a question and a case of where science fiction is already like, quite redundant and science is already ahead of it. So with all this in mind, we're thinking, okay, great, we've established all of these things. How do we bring all of this amazing stuff to the public in a way which they can understand where I don't have to just talk about it constantly or write a book? I want to make like a experience, an immersive experience which people could step into, walk into the future, touch the future, feel the future, and talk about the future. So what we did was we took a flower shop and we turned it into a data center. To bring this into physical reality, we transformed our local flower shop into a decentralized data center. We used this familiar environment to explore the unique characteristics of plants while raising issues around data storage and introducing scientific possibilities through storytelling to stir curiosity and provoke ethical considerations. Each appointment began with a personal consultation from a data growth expert who guided clients through the data to DNA encoding process, converting uploaded files like JPEGs and MP3s into ACGTs and synthetic DNA. We use data prescriptions to explore people's data stories and requirements while educating them on the possibilities of using DNA data storage such as unfathomable storage capacity, hyperlongevity and the ability to cross-pollinate or replant data. Once we had helped the client select a plant, we visited the on-site lab where a data scientist was on hand to demonstrate three laboratory techniques that could be used to insert synthetic DNA containing data to an organism like a plant. The data scientist used the visitor's prescription to decide upon a particular technique, explaining each of the possibilities and their implications. Just before the insertion, we deleted the files from our digital servers to provide full ownership and privacy to the client. Next, our data florist advised clients on how to care for their plant to ensure their data would bloom and grow. We created a data center card that lived with the plant, providing key information and care instructions. Each visitor left with an encoded plant and a special download kit, allowing them to send us a sample of their encoded plant, which we could use to read their data back. Our aim was to immerse visitors in a new world of possibilities, inform them about a set of growing issues, empower them to think differently and leave them with a fresh perspective. So yeah, we turned a, a flower shop into a data center and we allowed people to step into the future and allowed them to upload their data to a plant and go home with the plant, which contained their data. And this required us to basically create an entirely fictitious universe, a fictitious company called Grow Your Own Cloud, which is now actually a real thing, but at that time was fictitious. And it began online where we asked people to go through some kind of ritual to really think about an important piece of data that they would like to put into a plant because it will last forever if it goes into DNA. It's not as trivial as just throwing it into Google Drive or the cloud. And we created a lot of tools. We created software so that basically people's data would be mapped into ACGNT. We had an on-site lab, which basically was exactly the same 
kind of experience as we had in the lab in the Copenhagen University. The only thing was we couldn't do it for real because of GMO restrictions in Europe. We use these kinds of props and tools, like a data prescription card, to facilitate conversations about the kind of weird questions that you're probably having right now. Like, what happens to my plant when it dies and my data dies with it? Or what happens when my plant pollinates and my data spreads and I get sued for GDPR? Terrible things like this. And <laughs> yeah, these props were super good at facilitating and negotiating those conversations and bringing those issues up with people. And then at the end, we gave them this really nice data care card to reassure them so that they knew how to take care of their data. Because now their data wasn't something remote and far away. It was something tangible, physical, local, with them, which they had to nurture. It wasn't the machines nurturing it for them. And we actually got a lot of photos back from people, like months later, saying, here's my plant. It's still alive. It's great. I've looked after it. <laughs> And in general, it was just a really positive experience. We've done this thing a few times now in different countries as well. And to be honest, when we started doing it, I was really expecting people to be quite against genetic modification of plants for data storage, because it doesn't seem that nice a thing to do for me. But most people seem really up for this, apparently, which is a little bit scary, I must say. At the same time, though, they're up for it, even though they've understood the ethical principles. So that's interesting. So what we started thinking about was, where do we go from here? We've done these exhibitions, which are not in an art gallery. They are kind of like in, in context, which is really nice. But where do we go from here? We're going somewhere quite interesting, actually. We're heading towards now a place where speculation becomes real, where we use the speculative framework for research that we've done to establish ethical principles to start doing this in a real-world example, in a real place, creating data forests. That's what we're calling it anyway. And this is basically my dream now, to create data forests. And the idea is this. We basically have two streams of data. Most of your data will still go to the conventional cloud, real-time stuff for everyday use. But a lot of your data could go into archival. It could go into DNA archival specifically. This doesn't have to be in plants, but part of it could be in plants. And the reason for that is that it could create new opportunities for reforestation, which I think is really attractive and super interesting, especially at a time like this, where we kind of don't have an economic rationale that often for reforestation. It might not be that of a, it might, it's not that uh, clear an answer, not that clear a solution, but I think it's provocative at the least. And kind of more interestingly, it creates opportunities for afforestation, which is basically reforestation where there was no forest before. So places like cities, creating data forests in the city, completely radically transforming how cities look, making them green and having data stored in local areas. And I think that's quite attractive to try and use our best technology against climate change and giving it a, a, a rationale to prosper and flourish. So that's where we are today with this project. We're really fighting against the paradigms of the cloud of today. And we're trying to promote a future where the cloud of tomorrow creates a more green, sustainable, regenerative future. So thank you very much. You can find us at all of these lovely places. And please get in touch if you're interested in the project.